So that was Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned with the synagogue, with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are very ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all peoples everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Daenerys, and others, a number of others. Hi, Uni Church. Great to be with you. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Mike. I'm one of the staff here at St. Matt's. Uh, really great to be with you tonight as we look at Paul preaching the gospel as he arrives in Athens. It'd be great to leave your Bibles open in front of you. It'd be really helpful for me. Well, uh, don't you hate it? Don't you hate it when somebody else gets the credit for your work? 
In primary school, uh, we had a reward chart and every time you did something good in class, you were given a sticker and so you go and put that sticker next to your name on the chart and at the end of the term, the kid with the most stickers won a prize. Now, the prize at this particular time was awesome. It was this fantastic set of spaceship fridge magnets. It was fantastic. I know that you're not thrilled at it, but when I was in primary school, I really wanted it. Uh, It was great. And so I worked really hard at being good. Um, I picked up rubbish. I put chairs away. I put my hand up to answer questions. And every time I got a sticker, I'd run off to the chart and I'd stick it next to my name. Then the term ended and I had won. I had collected way more stickers than any other kid in the class. I crushed it. The last day of term came and the teacher gathered everybody down the front to sit down there and to announce who had won. And uh, as we assembled, I readied myself for my moment of glory and my moment of reward. Uh, And she gets out this awesome set of spaceship fridge magnets and she says, the winner who collected the most number of stickers is Ryan. Uh, Turns out all semester I'd been putting my stickers in the wrong space on the chart. I'd been putting them next to Ryan's name. But they were my stickers. It was my hard work and it was my spaceship set of fridge magnets. I was so angry. And I tried to tell the teacher but she just kept saying, well, the chart doesn't lie. I tried to tell Ryan but he wouldn't listen. I suspect deep down he really knew... Don't you hate it? Don't you just hate it when somebody else gets the work, gets the credit, rather, for your work? I know, I remember that very clearly. I was a kid. I also remember when I was an adult and working as an engineer, one of my co-workers laboured for 60 hours a week for over a year trying to solve this really complex engineering problem. And after a year, just as he was in the process of finally solving it, management replaced him with somebody else and they ended up getting the credit, they got the credit for a year of his work. And people in the office got really upset. Uh, There was something really unjust about that, something unfair. Don't you hate it when somebody takes the credit for another's work? It's not fair. It's unjust. It's upsetting to see. And that feeling is what Paul feels when he comes into the city of Athens. Because somebody in Athens is taking the credit, is taking the applause, is taking the adoration for God's work. Verse 16 to 21 is Paul's distress at seeing somebody in Athens take credit for something God did. Well, who's taking the credit? Well, have a look at verse 16 with me, the first verse there. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so he's waiting for the rest of his missionary team, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, an idol is just this little statue that somebody carves into a little god. And in verse 16, when it says that Athens was full of idols, that is no exaggeration. In Athens, there were hundreds of gods to choose from. There were temples, there were shrines, there were statues, there were altars literally everywhere through the city. Here's a drawing of ancient Athens. You can see up on the hill in the background, that's the Parthenon, in which stood this massive statue, this massive idol of Athena. You could see it for miles. Then elsewhere down in the city, there were all these images of these other gods. Apollo and Jupiter, Mercury, Neptune, Diana... 
Uh, in fact, here's a map of the city based on archaeological digs, and you can see that there are shrines and there's altars everywhere through the city. There's the Temple of Ares, there's the altar to the Twelve Gods, the Triton statues, the altar of Zeus, and many, many more scattered all through this ancient city. One ancient writer actually wrote of Athens at this time that it was easier to meet a god or a goddess in Athens than a person on the street. So all these idols on every street corner in Athens, all taking the credit for being God. All taking people's adoration and praise and worship. And as Paul comes into Athens, it really distresses him. Did you notice he even finds an altar with an inscription to an unknown God? Just in case there was any God out there, somewhere that the people of Athens hadn't honoured, they set up an altar to honour this unknown God. So as Paul walks around Athens, he quite literally sees pretty much every imaginable God getting honour and praise, except the one that deserves it. Except the one true God, the one true God who made the world, who made the people of Athens, who sustains the people of Athens. And don't you hate it when somebody else takes the credit for another's work? Well, so does Paul. So it really distresses him on account of God's name. When Paul gets to Athens, he becomes really jealous for God's name to be honoured as Paul sees humans giving idols the honour and glory that belong only to God. And so what does Paul do? Well, he starts speaking about the true God, that that he might be worshipped, that he might be honoured, instead of these little statues. Pick it up with me from verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this teaching is that you're presenting? Now, it's never really particularly encouraging when you're halfway through a sermon and somebody in the audience nudges the one next to them and says, hey, what's this babbler trying to say? Well, what Paul is trying to say to them is, you guys are robbing the true God of his right, glory and honour and you are giving the credit to somebody else. Now, they're interested to hear what Paul has to say about this and so they invite him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a group of people in Athens, they're kind of like the guardian of the city's philosophy and morals and education. They're a group of people, they're a council that they could weigh in on aspects of city life to do with education and philosophy lectures and public morality. And so here's Paul in front of them explaining the gospel to them and as he does that we start to see why this idolatry really distresses Paul. The first reason why this idolatry in Athens really upsets Paul is because idolatry dishonours God. Look from verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. 
So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, look at what he says next. Here is the first way their idolatry dishonors God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. See, firstly, their idolatry dishonors God because it minimizes him. It shrinks him down. They make a little temple and they make a little idol God and they put the idol in the temple to live. And Paul's point is, you've totally minimized God because that's what God does for humans. God made the world, God makes humans, he puts them in the world to live. And so when they make a temple and then they make a little God and put the God in the temple to live, can you see they've reversed the roles of God and humanity. They've minimized God and they've maximized humans. God doesn't live in temples made by humans. Humans live in the world made by God. And what they're doing is minimizing God, diminishing him, domesticating him. They've swapped the roles of God and humanity. Well, what about us? Do we ever think, even subconsciously, that God dwells or lives or is contained in buildings that we make? Uh, Do you ever think that somehow God kind of dwells over in the St. Matthew's church building in a way that he doesn't quite dwell in social science lecture theatre? Or doesn't quite dwell the same way down the shops or in the sports stadium or in your bedroom, in your house? Think of King Solomon after he made that magnificent temple in the Old Testament and he says, will God really dwell on earth? Even the heavens can't contain him, let alone this temple that I've built. See, if you ever arrive to a church on a Sunday saying, I'm going to go to this church and enter the house of God to be with God, I think in part you've minimised God. You have shrunk him and stuck him in a building. But God doesn't dwell in buildings any more than he lives anywhere else in your life because God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Humans live in the world built by God. You know, When uh, Notre Dame, uh, that famous church, burnt down earlier this year, it made worldwide news and I think with good reason. We lost a lot. Uh, we lost gorgeous architecture. We lost a really famous and important historical building. But what we didn't lose was a place that God especially dwelt. Because he doesn't live in buildings built by human hands. Humans live in the world built by God. And to think otherwise is to flip those roles and to pitifully minimise God. And it dishonours him. That's what's going on in Athens. Uh, But it's not the only reason that their idolatry dishonours God. There's another reason... Their idolatry dishonours God because it confuses the creator-created division. Look at verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the set times for them and the exact places they should live. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. See, God, 
He is not a bigger version of us. God is not a bigger version of humans. God is entirely different to us. He is the creator. We're the created. He made us. We rely on God for existence and life, or as verse 25 put it, he gives us life and breath. God needs nothing from us. He's not served by human hands as if he needs anything. It's us, the created, that need him, the creator. They're entirely different. And the created needs the creator and never the other way around. That's just the way creator and created always work. Some years ago, I uh, learnt to code and I created an iPad app. Uh, It's called Fruit Ninja. Some of you might have heard of it. Uh, It's not really. Um, I I made this app. I created it from nothing. I gave it life. I programmed its features and its functions. It relies on me for its very existence. I have to sustain it because I keep finding bugs in it. It's completely reliant on me as its creator for its survival. Conversely, I am completely unreliant on it. It does not give me life, it does not give me breath, I do not need it, I'm completely superior to it. That's just the natural order of of creator to created. God is not a bigger version of us. He is the creator, he is completely separate and different to the creation and he's superior to it, separate and superior Yet the people in Athens are reversing that order again. They make a little god out of created stuff and they worship it. And Paul is really distressed because this idolatry dishonours God. It minimises him, it domesticates him, it takes the praise and worship that is due to him and gives it to something else. And worst of all, it gives it to something else radically below him. It gives it to something created. It worships and loves something created rather than worshipping the Creator himself. What about us? Because I think it's entirely reasonable that you could be sitting there today thinking, well, you know, that was just a problem for primitive people 2,000 years ago. I've never made an idol. I've never carved a little god out of a piece of wood and bowed down to it and worshipped it. I'm not guilty of idolatry and worshipping the creation instead of the creator. The problem is we do that almost all the time. I find in my own life I'm constantly drawn to worship the creation rather than the creator. We just do it differently to how they did it in Athens. We do it differently to carving something out of wood or metal. You know, the Bible in Colossians says that greed is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. Why? You know, there's no little wooden carving involved there. But it's idolatry because greed loves something created like money as if it were God himself. If you get your security or your self-worth from money, the way that you should get your security and self-worth from God, then you're getting something from creation that you're supposed to get from the creator. Greed treats money, something created, as if it were God, the creator, and that's idolatry. Uh, Now, this kind of works with anything, right? So if you're a person who craves people's approval... If that's the thing that you love most and seek most, if that's the thing that makes you feel most uh, best about yourself, at some level you are probably worshipping people's approval of you. You're getting your self-worth from something created 
rather than the creator. That's the basis of idolatry. If you're getting uh, your self-esteem because of what you achieve at university, your academic achievement, or your talent or your success, if you're getting your self-worth from those things rather than from getting it from the fact that God loves you, you're getting something from creation that you should be getting from God. You're treating creation like it was the creator. That's the fundamentals of idolatry. Now, we all worship something. We all get our security and our self-worth from something. We all value something in life higher than everything else. If that something isn't God, then it is created, and that's idolatry. David Foster Wallace uh, was an, an American writer and university professor. He gave this cracking commencement speech in 2005, which I think brilliantly highlights that we all worship something, whether it's God or, or anything else. Now, he, this guy is not a religious man, but I want you to listen to what he says. He said this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. You can worship money, but you'll never feel you have enough. You can worship your body and beauty, and you'll always feel ugly. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll always feel stupid, a fraud, and on the verge of being found out. Now, do, you, do you see what he's saying? Now, this guy's not a religious man, but he gets that humans worship something. We can get our self-worth, our security, our meaning from something. Money, beauty, power, intellect, achievement. Listen to what he says next. He says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They're the default settings. They're the kind of worship that you just slip into day after day without being fully aware that you're worshipping. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. Now, he's a man that has respect for religion, but he is not a religious man. But did you hear what he was saying? He really understands the human heart. He knows that every human just has this default setting to worship something, to put ultimate value on something. Now, here's what Paul is saying in Athens. If that something isn't God, if that something is created, money, achievement, success, looks, then you have a problem because you're worshipping something created instead of of the creator, and that's fundamentally idolatry, and it dishonours God. It gives something to the created, honour, praise, attention, love, that should be given to the Creator, to God. And don't you hate it when someone else gets the credit and the love that belongs to another? That's what's happening in Athens. As Paul rolls in, he gets distressed at their idolatry in verse 16 because idolatry dishonours God, verse 22 to 29. It minimises God, it replaces him, it confuses the creator with the created. It gives to created objects the love and honour that should go to God alone. And like David Foster Wallace says, we do it all the time. Everybody worships something. 
So firstly, idolatry dishonours God, verse 22 to 29. Secondly, idolatry destines people to face God as judge. Pick it up with me from verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul says to the people in Athens, look, in the past God overlooked this kind of ignorance of idolatry and worshipping something other than God, but now he calls people everywhere to repent. Why? Because there is coming a day when God will judge the world for its idolatry, will judge the world for dishonouring him, for domesticating him, for diminishing him, for giving to created things the love and honour and praise that are rightly due to him. Let me try and explain to you why idolatry is upsetting to God. Uh, I brought something along from home. Uh, This is a picture that my son made. He made it when he was about four. Uh, He created it. What if I did an experiment? What if for a whole day I treated this drawing that he created as if it was him, the creator? So in the morning I made it breakfast instead of him. I played with it instead of him. I turned the TV on and sat on the couch with my arm around it and watched the football with it instead of him. And at the end of the day, I tuck it into his bed, tell it that I love it, and all day completely ignore my son. How do you think he'd feel in that experiment? Uh, There is a slight chance that he'd love it. He might look at that and go, this is the best drawing I've ever made. Dad loves it. I think more likely he's going to get pretty upset pretty quick. Now, what if I did that, not just for a day, but what if I did it for a whole week, a whole month? What if I did it my whole life? I think he would rightly get pretty upset that I am treating the drawing, something he created, as if it were him, the creator. Friends, that's what we do to God when we worship something created instead of the creator that made it. And just as me treating my son's drawing as if it were him is upsetting for him, so too God is rightly upset when we treat and love the things he has created as the creator himself. And so God calls us to repent, to stop. For in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day of judgment. And that is what distresses Paul as he rolls into Athens. Because he sees people worshipping created things, wood and metal shaped into gods. And it distresses him because, number one, it dishonours God, verse 22 to 29. And number two, it destines people to judgment, verse 30 to 31. Well, if you get that, then you understand what is going on in Acts 17. But I want to give us three things to think about. Uh, These are three things I really had to kind of think myself about uh, this week. Uh, First thing to think about is that Paul's distress in Athens should be our distress in Perth. You know, have a look at verse 16. I, I think you could realistically rewrite verse 16 to say something like this. 
While Paul was waiting for them in Perth, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Athens indeed was a city full of idols, but friends, Perth is a city full of idols. Our idols just look different to what they look like in Athens. The worship of money, of sex, of food, of academic achievement, of sporting achievement, of physical appearance, the worship of all those things is on every street corner in Perth. You remember that image of ancient Athens that I showed with the Parthenon dominating the landscape right up the back and it has this big building and this huge statue of Athena which you can see uh, from miles, it dominated the skyline. I wonder if the equivalent for Perth would be Optus Stadium, that massive building that we dropped $1.6 billion to make and then every seven days during footy season, masses turn up there to scream and cheer, to weep and to cry. Now, even if you're not into footy, I think you could look at Optus Stadium as a kind of a symbol of our culture's idol of pleasure and leisure, our culture's idol of entertainment. We are a culture that loves to have a life of pleasure and leisure. In fact, we have a term for it. Uh, it's the term, to have a life. Uh, if, you, uh, if you work too much, if you don't get out on the weekends, uh, we actually say this thing, I don't have a life. God gives us life and breath and everything else, but if I don't have enough time to go to a cafe or the beach or to have smashed av on toast on Saturday, I say, I don't have a life. Now, that little phrase, I don't have a life, should signal to you what our Aussie culture idolises. Life is the thing of weekends and leisure, of beaches and cafes, and if you're lucky enough and work hard enough, an early, comfortable retirement. That is the stuff of life in Perth. It gives life meaning and purpose, and without it, we say, I don't have a life. Friends, Perth is a city full of people worshipping things that God created rather than the Creator. What distresses you as you drive around our city? Is it the fact that cyclists on Saturday morning take up an entire lane just for the one of them? Is it that the only things open in Perth during the week, late at night, is either a service station or a spud shed? Is it uh, that our city just can't merge? What is so difficult about two cars getting into one lane? Like, why can't we do it? Is that what distresses you about Perth? Or is it that our city, like Athens, is a city full of idols? Is a city that en masse worships and gives its love and praise and value to the things that God created rather than the creator himself and it totally dishonours God and it destines people to face him as judge? The idolatry in Athens, it caused Paul distress. And I think to some degree that should be the same distress we feel in Perth. The distress that he felt in Athens, it moved him, didn't it? It it moved him to speak so that people would give rightly to God the honour and praise due to him. Does that happen for us in Perth? I want to read you something that John Stott wrote that kind of uh, resonated with me. He wrote this. Why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully on, deaf to Christ's commission? 
I think the major reason is this. We don't speak as Paul spoke because we don't feel as Paul felt. We've never had his distress, which he had. Divine jealousy has not stirred within us. We constantly pray, hallowed be your name, but we don't seem to mean it or care that his name is so widely profaned. Why is this? We don't speak like Paul spoke because we don't feel like Paul felt and this is because we don't see like Paul saw. For that was the order. He saw, he felt, he spoke. For he saw men and women created by God giving to idols the homage which was due to him alone. Paul's distress in Athens should be to some degree our distress in Perth for our city is a city full of idols. They just look different. Secondly, and I think more importantly, it's our idols that should distress us most. It's actually not good enough tonight to kind of set our eyes out there and feel distress at our city's idols. What we have to do is actually look in here, at our own hearts. Because while it is true that Athens was a city full of idols, it is also true that my heart is a heart full of idols. And that's the thing that should concern me and distress me most. John Calvin once described the human heart as an idol factory. And that's been my personal experience. My heart is an idol factory. My heart too easily loves people's approval more than God's approval. My self-worth is too easily built on my success and not God's sacrificial love. My heart is an idol factory. What about yours? What is the thing that your heart loves most? What is the thing you love most, that you desire most? That thing that you kind of, if you have nothing else on your mind, you just kind of daydream about? What is it that really gives you your self-worth and self-value? At some level, you may be worshipping that thing. Now, if that thing is something created, approval, academic success, money, physical appearance, then you have a problem because that's worshipping something created instead of the creator. I think it's it's worth clarifying at this point that what we're not saying is don't love and admire and chase after things in creation. Uh, You're welcome to do that. We're supposed to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us, but there's a difference between loving something created and treating it as if it were God. See, I can love my son's drawing and I can stick it on the fridge and I can get a lot of enjoyment from it and I can look at it every morning but that is different to treating it like it is him giving it the love and care and attention that belongs to him see when I've done that I have crossed the line the line of idolatry it dishonors God to give to something else what belongs to him and the distress for me is my heart goes to do it daily my heart is full of idols what about yours Because they're the idols that should distress us the most. Well, if that's you, uh, thanks be to God for his mercy through Jesus. For God has given us Christ to forgive us our offence, to forgive us our idolatry, to forgive me for the ways that I have dishonoured God. Jesus took my judgment on the cross so that I don't have to face God as judge. Thanks be to God for his mercy through Jesus. But this passage does call us to repent, to stop dishonouring God by giving credit to the things that he created 
to giving ultimate value to things in creation, to stop doing that and to give our ultimate value and praise to him. So put away your idols, St. Matt's. Let's put away our idols. The third thing to think about, and perhaps another reason to put away our idols, is that idols always let us down, and God does not. If your idol is achievement in life, that is always going to be threatened by failure. If your idol is your youth and your beauty, that fades. If your idol is money and that's where you get your security, you'll always be nervous about your investments. If your idol is people's approval, well, that can just disappear in one Instagram tweet. I know that's not a thing. Um, Don't worry, I'm old. Idols always let you down. Now, you might be used to people saying idols always let you down on Judgment Day. Well, that's true, but I want to say idols always let you down at some point in your earthly life because they're created. They don't last. They can be lost. They can be taken away from you. They can be destroyed and broken. Idols always disappoint in this life and they leave us brokenhearted. Many people, many Christians, pierce themselves with grief in this life for loving things that are created and destined to fade and break, but only God lasts forever. David Foster Wallace, that the man that I quoted before, uh, now he's not, remember, he's not a religious man. He has respect for religion, but he is not religious himself. Listen to what he said about this, about idols and how they disappoint. I think this is stunning. He said, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus or Allah or the Wiccan mother goddess, is pretty much that anything else you worship will eat you alive. In other words, will disappoint you in this life. He says this, if, if you worship money, if that's where you get your real meaning and security, you will never feel you have enough. Worship your intellect, you'll always feel stupid and always be on the verge of being found out. Worship your own body and beauty and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age starts to show, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. That's brutal. But it is brilliantly insightful for someone that is not a religious man. He gets it. He gets that idols always let you down because they're created. They don't last. But God does. God does. He never lets you down in this life and the next. So put away your idols, Uni Church. Let's put away our idols. They dishonor God, they destine people for judgment, and they always let us down in this life and the next. Before you close your Bibles and before you put away those little tables, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you are the creator, that you saw fit to create us and give us this world to live in and it is right and good for us to give the honour due to you. Father, protect us from idolatry. Lord, we pray that you would spare us from putting our hope into the things of this world, putting our our love into the things of this world. We know that that dishonours you, we know that it disappoints you, and we know that they always disappoint us, that idols can never bear the weight that we put on them. So, Father, we pray that we might repent if we have idols in our hearts, 
you might help us put them away and worship you truly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.